one of the things I've been missing uh, when we've kind of been doing things different is Rebecca and our boys have been sitting in the uh, fellowship hall. Uh, and so this morning I got to sit next to Patrick, and while we were singing Holy, 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 he was kind of like dancing a little bit. I thought he's not old enough to know he's Baptist just yet, so <laughs> he'll figure it out one day. All right, I want to invite you to take your Bible and turn with me this morning to 2 Peter chapter 1. Book of 2 Peter chapter 1. If you're looking in the Pew Bible, you should find it on page 1298. A few weeks ago, uh, we were watching basketball at our, in our house, and uh, this scary scene played out on TV. There was a player who jumped up high in the air, as, as professional basketball players tend to do, and as he was in midair, his feet got knocked out from under him. And as he fell, the first part of his body that made contact with the hardwood was the side of his head. And uh, I think I gasped. Rebecca happened to be in the room. She wasn't paying all that close attention. But I said, watch this replay and see what happens. And she was appalled. Now, let me say, he didn't suffer any lasting injuries. So this is not a story with a, a bad ending. But in the moment, it looked, it looked awful. I'm watching this player lay there on the floor and he is completely motionless. The only movement on the court is the trainers who are rushing to his side and trying to, to check on him. Now, I want us to, to put ourselves in the, in the shoes of one of these trainers. Imagine it's your job to go and to, to diagnose what has happened. Um, th this player could, could very easily have a concussion, uh, or worse, he could have broken his neck the way he came down with the full weight of his body on the side of his head. But imagine how silly it would be if one of those trainers shouted, somebody get me his high school test scores. You could imagine somebody would say, why do you need those right now? How are his high school test scores relevant to what's in front of us? And the trainer says, well, I need to make sure that his, his mental function is okay. That's not how you check for a concussion, is it? You, you see if they're conscious. You ask them, you know, some simple questions. What year is it? What's your name? That kind of thing. Or, or imagine if, um, if he said, somebody get me his, his developmental records from when he was a toddler. We need to find out if he's able to walk. That's not the way you check for paralysis. You, you, you ask him if he can wiggle his fingers and toes. Now, in the opening passage of 2 Peter, Peter urges us in verse 10... He says, therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, which is to say, strive to show that you are saved. We don't check for spiritual life by looking into the distant past. That's, that's one of the points that Peter makes there. The way we, we strive to show that we're saved is to see whether we bear the fruit of godliness. So he doesn't say... Look way off into the past and ask yourself, have you ever accepted Jesus into your heart? Have you ever prayed the sinner's prayer? Not that there's anything wrong with either of those things. But we need to ask ourselves, is there evidence in my life of faith? Is there, are there signs in my life that I trust in Jesus and that I desire to be more like Him? Not that I'm perfect, but that there are desires in my life to become more like Jesus. And one of the most startling things that the Bible says is that on the last day, 
when every single one of us has to stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account for our life, the Bible says that He is going to judge us according to our deeds. Now, of course, we don't come into God's family by good works. God causes us to be born again according to His great mercy. But godliness is such an essential sign of having been born again that when I stand before the judgment seat of Christ, He's going to examine my deeds to see whether there is evidence of a living faith. Just in the same way that if you wanted to walk past a pecan tree in season and see if it's alive, you, you look for pecans that are on it or that have fallen from it. And so the question that I want us to ask ourselves this morning is, do we really believe that? Do we take God at His word that each of us will one day have to give an account to Him for how we lived our lives? That's what Peter aims to impress upon us in the passage that we're about to read this morning. So let's pick up in 2 Peter chapter 1. We're going to begin in verse 12. He says, Therefore I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it is right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort, so that after my departure you may be able at any time to recall these things. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For when He received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to Him by the majestic glory, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with Him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Let's pause there and we'll pray together. Lord, we ask that you would bless the hearing of your word. And Lord, that we would heed what you say in this very passage, that we would pay attention to this word as to a lamp shining in a dark place. So Lord, would you help us to fix our gaze on what you have said, and would you help us to have open ears to what you've spoken here in this word. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, Peter says a couple times in the first few verses that we read this morning that he wants to remind us. He says in verse 13, I think it right as long as I am in this body to stir you up by way of reminder. Now, Peter knows what we all know, that he's not going to live forever. There's going to come a time when he's no longer going to be able to, to speak to these people that he's writing this letter to. So this letter is his attempt to, to put something into writing that will outlive him. He says in verse 15, I will make every effort so that after my departure, after I'm, after I'm dead, that you may be able at any time to recall these things. And the fact that we're reading this letter this morning 2,000 years later is proof of that. Peter's been dead for centuries, but he's still reminding us even this morning. And we as humans are a forgetful people, so we need reminders. Um, occasionally, Rebecca will have to remind me about one of my 
household responsibilities like taking out the trash. Um, when she reminds me that I need to take the trash out, she's not breaking news. It's not like I say, oh, wow, I, did, I never knew I was supposed to take the trash out. I could say that sarcastically, but it probably wouldn't be the wisest thing. Uh, she's telling me something that I already know, but that I'm not acting like I remember, right? Or it's like if, if I tell one of our sons after they've had a, a, a tough day, and that happens on occasion, if I sit down with them and say, I will always love you, and nothing will ever change that. If I tell them that, that's something they've already heard before. It's not like they're, they're hearing breaking news for the very first time. But in that moment, they need to hear it again. They need to call it to mind. They need to be assured that my love has not wavered. And in a similar way, God knows this about us. He knows how much we need reminders. And so I want you just to think for a moment about the whole big picture of the Bible and how in the Old Testament when God redeemed His people out of slavery in Egypt, what did He do? He said to them, every year I want you to repeat this. Not that you're going to repeat being freed from slavery, but I want you to celebrate the Passover. This is going to be a reminder to you every year of this incredible thing that I did to redeem you out of your slavery, to remind you that your relationship with me is not because you redeemed yourself. It's not because you rose up and you overthrew Pharaoh, but it's because I reached down with a mighty hand and outstretched arm and I freed you, I liberated you. It's why God sent the prophets to remind His people of the covenant that He had made with them of the promises that He had made to them, and of the responsibilities that He had given to Him. It's why in the New Testament, the church, in the book of Acts, it says that they met week after week after week. They gathered over and over to devote themselves to the teaching of the Word, and to prayer, and to fellowship. Because the truths that we remember or that we forget, they have profound consequences in our lives. It's not just, remembering is not just a mental uh, thing to do. It is something that involves our hearts and our actions. So here's how that was playing out in, in the context in which Peter wrote this letter. There were some people, these were, not, these were not unbelievers. They may have been unbelievers, but they at least professed to be believers. These were people within the churches who were denying that Jesus was going to return. They were sowing doubt about that. They were even denying it outright. And because they denied that Jesus was coming again, they rejected the possibility that there's going to be any kind of future judgment. If Jesus is coming back, then there's not going to be any kind of judgment. We're never going to be held to account for anything we've done. And if we're never going to be held to account for anything we do, then you might as well do whatever you want. Just live how you please. Just get the most out of life, the most pleasure, the most whatever you want out of life. Do what you want. But if Jesus is coming again, and if He will judge the living and the dead, then these false teachers have made a severe miscalculation, and they have led many people into the same error. Now, my job is, is not to preach to the people to whom Peter was writing this letter. My job is to apply God's Word to our context. So here's the question that I've been asking myself this week. Are there people listening to my voice right now, who would deny the reality of, of a future judgment at the hands of Jesus? Are there, is there anyone who's listening to my voice right now 
who would say, you know what, I don't, I don't really believe in that, that, that one day everybody's going to have to stand before Jesus and give an account for their lives. Of course, I don't, I don't know the answer to that because I can't, I can't read minds. But here's my suspicion, okay? There are probably some of us who think of that judgment as something that other people need to worry about, not me. That's something that other people need to be concerned about. It's not something that I need to be all that concerned about. Terrorists, murderers, abusers, swindlers who scam people out of money. Um, those are the kinds of people who need to, to worry about standing before Jesus one day. But one of the main points of this letter is that we will all have to give an account before one who sees everything and who judges impartially. So, so here's how I want to try to summarize the, the big idea here. And that is to say, remember God's promises and live accordingly. Remember God's promises and live accordingly. Remember what God has said He will do. Remember what He has said is going to happen in the future. And then in light of that, let that affect how you live your life today in faith and in godliness. So whatever your thoughts are uh, about the return of Jesus... If they don't lead you to pursue godliness, then you've, you've missed the point, right? There were some in Peter's day who were denying that it would happen. There are some in our day who never think about it. Just, you know, you go through life and you think about, here's what I got to do today, but I don't ever think about that. There are other people in our day who are obsessed with it, right? That's all they ever talk about. And they've got charts that they'll show you if, if you ever ask them about it. And they've got a favorite preacher on TV that talks about it all the time, and they've probably got websites that they go to that break everything down and the numbers and here's what they mean and all that kind of stuff. Here's the thing. I don't care if you never think about it or if it's all you ever think about. Whatever you think about the return of Jesus, if it doesn't lead you to, to trust Him and to pursue godliness, then you've missed the point. You've missed the point. So we need to be convinced of Jesus' return. We need to be convinced that it's going to happen and, and that it's something we need to think about. And we also need to be convinced to live accordingly so that we will, in the words of Hebrews 12, 14, strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So what I want to do is I, I want you to notice, think of it this way, that Peter essentially calls two witnesses to the stand here to say, okay, it's really important that you understand that Jesus is going to return again, that you're going to have to give an account before Him. And I've written this letter to stir you up to remember this so that even after I'm long dead, you'll still be able at any time to recall these things. And, and because this is so important, I'm now calling two witnesses to the stand that are going to hopefully convince you of the certainty of God's promises concerning the return of Christ. So the first people that Peter calls to the stand are the apostles, which he was one. Uh, he calls the apostles to the stand. He, he, he calls them to the stand to give testimony to what they had seen. Now, I want us to just put on our critical thinking hat for a second here. And I want us to ask ourselves, how in the world could Peter point to the human testimony 
of people who died 2,000, roughly 2,000 years ago uh, as evidence for something that has not yet happened, right? How can he say that, that their eyewitness testimony about something they saw convinces us that something that hasn't yet happened will, in fact, happen? So Christ's return is in the future. No one has witnessed it yet. Well, let's give Peter and the Holy Spirit the benefit of the doubt here and see if we can follow the line of reasoning. So look with me at verse 16. Peter says, For we, and when he says we here, he's talking about the, the apostles, the, the ones who had been specifically chosen and appointed by Jesus to bear witness to the things that they had seen and heard from him. He says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. Verse 17, For when He received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to Him by the majestic majesty, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with Him on the holy mountain. What in the world is He talking about? Well, this is uh, an event that the gospel writers describe, which we often call the transfiguration. The transfiguration. Here's the idea. That's, that big word's not important. What's important is what happens. Jesus takes three of his closest followers, Peter, James, and John. He takes them up onto a high mountain, and it says there that he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light. So that's what it means when it says that he was transfigured. His, his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. Now, to say that Jesus was transfigured does not mean that he took something to himself which he did not previously have. Instead, these three men were allowed to see a glimpse of the glory, of his glory as he truly is. So, Try to think of an analogy here. Uh, I, I know this guy who used to try to convince me, unsuccessfully, that Superman is better than Batman. He did never, never succeeded. But uh, the best argument that he ever made, the only time that I ever thought, mm, I might have to think about that for a second, is he, he used to say this. He'd say, Bruce Wayne puts on a disguise to become the Batman, but Superman puts on a disguise to become Clark Kent. Right? So Bruce Wayne has to become Batman. He has to transform into Batman, whereas Superman has to conceal his true identity in order to appear normal. Now, that's, this is not a perfect analogy, so don't press it too far. But when Jesus became flesh, he did not give up any of his glory. It's not like he was God and then he stopped being God. Instead, he took on humanity. And so at the transfiguration, what Peter, James, and John saw was they essentially got a glimpse of what he looks like without his glory being concealed in his humanity. They saw him. They saw just a glimpse of him as he truly is. So again, what is the point, though, of mentioning that event, the transfiguration, which happened in the past, as evidence for Jesus' return, which is going to happen in the future. Well, the gospel writers link these two events as well. I want you to listen carefully to what Mark says. Mark was a close friend of Peter. In fact, 
Peter mentions at the end of 1 Peter that Mark was with him. So these were close friends. And in Mark chapter 9, verse 1, here's what Mark says. And he, that is Jesus, said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. So Jesus says, there are some who are standing here right now who before they die, they're going to see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. So it sounds like Jesus is saying, there are people who are going to be alive when I come in glory and power. But, but notice the very next verse. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up on a uh, led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. So Jesus says, some of these disciples are going to see the kingdom of God come in power before they die. Then the very next verse, he takes them up on a mountain where they behold his glory. And Peter says here, we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So here's the logic of, of what he's arguing. He's saying, listen, there are some people out there who deny that Jesus is going to come again. Maybe they said, you know what? We think this is just something that the apostles made up. And so what Peter says is, no, 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 we didn't make this up. We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made this known to you, the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. So the very event that some people were doubting or denying, Peter says, we have already seen it. We've already seen it. What we saw for a moment is going to happen for eternity, but we've already seen what we're telling you is going to happen. So the, the transfiguration was this prophetic event. It was this event that signaled something that was going to be in the future. They got a preview of what everyone will see on the day of the Lord. They saw the kingdom of God in power because they saw the king in his glory. And not only were they eyewitnesses, they were also ear witnesses. They themselves heard the voice of God say, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And Peter says, Jesus received honor and glory from God the Father. He was honored by the Father's words. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And he was glorified in his transfiguration. They saw his face shine like the sun. They saw his clothes become as white as light. So in Peter's mind, the future, of Christ, the, the future return of Christ is not in doubt because we've already witnessed a foretaste of it. This, was, this event was like a down payment on the day when Jesus would be exalted to the right hand of God and that He would receive the name above all names. It was a brief glimpse of the Son's eternal glory and power. So that's the first group of witnesses that Peter calls to the stand. He, he, he mentions the human testimony of these appointed witnesses, the apostles of what they had seen. And the second group that he calls to the stand are the prophets. This is the second uh, group of witnesses that Peter puts forward to testify to the truthfulness of the return of Jesus. Notice what he says in verse 19. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. So here's the idea, okay? The prophets in the Old Testament clearly predicted a, a day, uh, the day of the Lord, when God would judge 
all people, and His glory would fill the earth as the waters cover the seas. And so we have that witness from the prophets, which comes from God, and we have along with that the witness of the apostles who have seen a foretaste of that event. And so when you put those two together, the witness of the apostles in the Old Testament, the witness of the excuse me, the witness of the prophets in the Old Testament and of the apostles in the New Testament, you have what Peter calls the prophetic word more fully confirmed. So the Old Testament and the New Testament together certify the fact that God has appointed a day when He will judge the living and the dead through His Son. Look at what Peter says in verse 21. He says, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. What the prophets said did not come from them. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now notice the balance there. The Word of God was not produced by the will of man. It is from God. The Holy Spirit, he says, carried along the human authors so that the words they wrote down are the words of God. And at the same time, Peter says, men spoke. They spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit, but still they spoke, which is why when you read the Bible, you hear the vocabulary of Peter, which is different from the vocabulary of Paul, which is different from the vocabulary of Moses and David. And you hear their, their unique styles and personalities come through in the way they write. The way that the Bible comes to us was not by the Holy Spirit dictating the words to Peter or Paul or Moses or David as if they were just secretaries for God. Instead, God in a more profound way, in a more powerful way, oversaw their lives and their personalities and their vocabularies and guided them in such a way that, for example, when Peter sits down to write this letter, he writes exactly the words he wants to say, and yet in a mysterious way, at the same time, he says exactly the words God wanted to say. And so when we read this book, we're reading something that is from God. It's not ultimately from Peter or from David, or from Moses, or from Paul, or from any other human author. It is from God. The Bible is not this effort that humans have worked at for thousands of years to try to know God or to try to describe God. Instead, the Bible is God's effective act of making Himself Known. And the result, as Peter says in verse 19, is that we would do well to pay attention to this word as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. I mean, as, as simple as it is to say, imagine how we would respond this morning if we were gathered together and suddenly we heard a voice from heaven speak to us, if we heard the mouth of God speak. Imagine how that would affect us, the way we would respond to that. And the truth of the matter is, that a few minutes ago when, when we opened this up and I read these words out loud, that's what happened. I'm not, I'm not God. I'm not inspired. I, what I say is not God-breathed, but when we read this book out loud, we're hearing the voice of God. He speaks. He didn't just speak in the past. He still speaks today. There's coming a day when we'll be in the presence of Jesus, the Word, capital W, in flesh, 
But until that day, God has given to us His Word in the form of this book. This is where He has chosen to make Himself known. This book is not dead. It is living and active. It is a lamp shining in a dark place. And Peter says we would do well to pay attention to it. So I want to circle back to, to the big idea. Remember God's promises and live accordingly. I said earlier that remembering is something we do with more than our brains. In fact, there are times in the Bible when it is said that God remembers. I mentioned earlier the Exodus. In Exodus chapter 2, when the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help, it says, Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered His covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. To say that God remembered His covenant does not mean that He had forgotten it and suddenly it came back to Him. It's not like He was sitting there and He was just kind of saying, okay, I think everything's fine. Oh, wait, I, I hear the people of Israel groaning and asking for help. This just came back to me. I made a covenant a while back with Abraham and I said that I was going to bless his descendants. I guess I better do something. No. When it says that God remembered His covenant, it means that He began to act upon it. In a similar way, when God calls on us to remember His promises, or when Peter says that He intends to stir us up by way of reminder, it's not just that God is wanting to do something with our heads. It starts there. But ultimately, God is wanting to do something in our hearts and our wills. Peter even says in verse 12, Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. Sometimes I think we have this idea that, you know, we constantly need to be having our minds blown by something new. When what God says we need is we need to recall the things we already know and live accordingly. Remember God's promises and live accordingly. And so that's the application. And I want you to think about those two halves of that sentence and ask yourself which of those, or maybe both, but, but sometimes it's you know, maybe that I emphasize one to the neglect of the other. It's not enough to try to live however you want with no concern for what God has said. There are plenty of people in the world who want to be good people, right? They want to do the right thing, but they never stop to ask what does God define as good? What does He say is right? What does He say is just? And so they just kind of try to figure it out. They look around at what everybody else says is good and right, and they say, I guess that's what's good and right, so I guess I'll do that. So it's not enough to just kind of try to live however you want without any concern for what God has said. That is what the Bible calls foolishness. So we have to pay attention to God's Word as to a lamp shining in a dark place. On the other hand, though, it's not enough to, to know the Bible backward and forward and sideways, yet fail to live in a way that pleases the one from whom the Word comes. So you could, you could memorize Scripture, you could know Scripture, you could be able to quote it, you could know all the principles, all the right things to say, but if you're not living accordingly, then you're not doing the fullness of what God has told us to do. I love the way that uh, the Old Testament describes the man Ezra. 
In Ezra chapter 7, it says of him that he was a, he was a scribe. He was one of those people whose job it was to, to study the Word of God and to try to, to teach it to other people and to, to, um, to make sure that people could hear it. And it says of Ezra that he set, his, set in his heart to, to know the Word of the Lord, to study it, uh, to obey it, to observe what it said, and to teach it to the people of Israel. So, in other words, he had a desire to listen to what God had said in His Word, but he also had a desire to, to obey it, to live it out, and then to, to teach it to others. We're going to sing a hymn of invitation in a moment, and this is our opportunity to sort of take stock of ourselves and, and ask ourselves, you know, is there one of those areas in which I am falling short? Am I trying to just be a good person, to live however I want without any concern for what God has said in His Word? Or on the other hand, am I, um, am I you know, so sort of self-righteous that I think uh, I'm a good person simply because I know what the Bible says, but I'm not actually being a doer of the Word? So here's the thing. Um, as I said earlier, I, I can't see your heart. I can't read your mind, but there is one who can. And so there's no sense in trying to, to conceal before him. There's no sense in trying to, uh, to evade his gaze. There's no sense in trying to cover over our sins with our own attempts at righteousness. We've already been laid bare. And so it, it's time, it's time to, to come to him to confess what he already knows and to, to ask him for forgiveness. His word says, if we say we are without sin, we are liars and we don't practice the truth. But if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So let's pray together. Lord, we thank You for that, that promise of Your Word, that You have promised to receive anyone who will come to You in genuine faith and repentance. And Lord, I pray that there would be no one who is listening to my voice this morning who would uh, try to, uh, to cover up their sin or try to uh, boast in their own righteousness, Lord, but that we would confess that we have been laid bare before your gaze and that you see our hearts, you see our desires, you see our thoughts. And yet, Lord, at the same time, even though you know us completely and fully, even more than we know ourselves, you sent your son Jesus to die in our place. Lord, knowing how sinful we would be, you still gave up your son who is completely perfect and sinless so that you could welcome us into your family. And so, Lord, I pray that there would be no one here today or anyone else who's listening to my voice, wherever they may be today, who would uh, run from you or harden their heart, Lord, but that we would run to you. Lord, that we would confess our sins to you because your word says that you are faithful and just to receive us, to forgive us, and to cleanse us from unrighteousness. So, Lord, would you do that now? Would you work in us? Holy Spirit, would you move in our hearts and in our wills to draw us to, to faith and to repentance. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing together. Number four,